Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview James Lee. Now, James is a former member of the military and he is now instructing people on how to fly. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Paul. Uh, first of all, many thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, yeah, glad to be here. My absolute pleasure, mate. And it's, you know, you've got, you've got an interesting life to say at the very least. And, um, We'll get into some of that, but where did it all begin for you, though? I mean, you're from the Wirral originally. Yeah, so from the Wirral, I generally say Liverpool because not many people have heard the Wirral, uh, so up that way anyway. Uh, I think it all stemmed from being of a young age at school and reading comics and watching war movies and thought, yeah, I, w- I want to join the army. Uh, and initially, when I remember about 13, 14, I was really keen on joining the Royal Marines really keen on it now you know I was going out doing the fitness joined the army cadets and did all that and uh, yeah and then it came to 16 left school and all of a sudden I don't know it was like you wake up and you thought actually that looks like hard work that looks like very <laughs> hard work <laughs> that's very honest of you mate uh, anyway I ended up on a people remember the older audience remember the YTS schemes yeah yeah of course yeah so I ended up doing a YTS scheme as an auto electrician in Birkenhead for a Ford garage and uh, it was all right, you know, but I remember after a couple of years, I did it for two years, uh, towards the end, I just remember it, it was a dirty job, you know, we were working in a garage, uh, and there was guys in there who just worked in there their entire lives. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, I don't want to be like them. And then I think I revisited the military, and I thought, this is going to be a way out of here. But I thought, I'm not joining the infantry or the Marines. That is hard work. <laughs> So what, what um, regiment were your army cadets lined up to? They were the Cheshire regiments right. affiliated to. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the army cadets was great. You know, oh, yeah. You, just, you look back and it was just, you were messing about. You got to fire guns. and. I loved guns, it. You know? Yeah, I loved it. Well, I it absolutely wasn't too serious it. looking back now. No, but it was it was good fun. It was structured and it actually moulded you into the person that you yeah. later become. Yeah, and I think it helped when I eventually joined the army. You know, it wasn't like a... A massive shock to some, you know, when I was in training, some of the guys, it was a huge shock. You know, you sort of knew what was coming. You knew the discipline and what they sort of expected. So what did you join? What regiment did you join? So I joined the Royal Corps of Transport. I did try to join the RAF, and I remember going to the recruiting office in Liverpool one day, and they were closed. Oh. (laughs) Uh, It must have been a Tuesday or a Thursday, because they were closed for the weekend, you know. Yeah. Uh, There might be a few digs (laughs) against the RAF on this. (laughs) Of course there is. I've got. I hold them in high regard. Yeah. The RAF, but into into service rivalry. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, I, I see it. All you know. <laughs> you have all the all the comedians going on about what the what the different messes look like and the different living it's quarters. Gonna, it's going to turn up later on in this as well. So anyway, I went there. They they were closed, and uh, I eventually went into the army. And they were trying to get me to join the. It was the Cheshire Regiment, I think it was at the time. And I said, No, no, I'm not joining that. And I remember doing the test, and they sort of said, "Yeah, you, you've 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 got a couple of brain cells." So they suggested the Royal Corps of Transport as a driver. Fantastic! Thought, yeah, driving trucks. I thought I'll, I'll have a bit of that. 
and they showed us the videos of these really nice trucks and kit and it was great and then uh, joined the army and we were driving things from the 60s yeah you know driving these old battered trucks that should have been in a museum back then double declutching yeah yeah awful thing well good fun you know yeah uh, you know 80 well 19 i was when i joined up uh loved it but you know looking back these these things were awful so do they put you through all your all your uh, licenses yeah so you do the basic training you know the i think it was nine weeks in aldershot learning to be a soldier shooting all that and then you go. We went off to Leckenfield up near Beverly, Humberside. Yeah. Uh, the Army School of Mechanical Transport, which I think is now the Joint School of Mechanical Transport. Uh, yeah. And I could already drive. I'd got my car license on Civvy Street before I joined up. So I remember did my HGV. Started on a Monday, passed on a Friday, uh, and then they do some other training with you, uh, service and trucks and like military type stuff. You know, tactical parking and more. How to hide them in the woods. Uh, and then it was uh, time for a posting, uh, so finished training, and uh, I was posted to eight regiment, eight transport regiments in Munster. And I remember being at Aldershot. I think it was Monday mornings you were there, and they would read out all the postings, and it was like Smith, you're off to this place, Jones. And they went Lee, eight transport regiments. And I remember them saying, "Have you upset somebody?" I thought that doesn't sound good, does it? Because it, apparently it used to be a bad boys posting. Oh really? I think they might have said that about every regiment to be yeah. honest. <laughs> and because did we have tanks out? Out there then in uh, Munster. I got out to Munster in, I think it was, I remember the date, January the 17th, 1990. And the Berlin Wall had came, come down the year before, I think right. the October. So i just missed the Cold War by about three months. Wow. But everything was still in place, obviously. there was. I flew into RAF Guttersloe. Uh, yeah, there was, I think it was 50,000, 60,000 troops there when I turned up. So it was still geared up for, you know, the, the British Army. It was British Army of the Rhine, Rhine still, yeah. I think, yeah. And obviously we'd all turned up. And while I was there over the next four years, everything got sort of uh, ground down. But in such a short space of time, you know, we're talking 33 years now, which for me, 1990 seems like only yesterday. But in such a short space of time, we've got no service personnel really in Germany. Uh, You only have to look at the issues in the Ukraine. We've got no forward troops. Well, we have, but, you know, they're probably sitting somewhere in Germany. But where we had 60,000 as the barrier between us and the Ukraine, we don't have that anymore. Yeah, but, you know, if you look at history, uh, that's what military do. You know, I get it, armies or military are expensive to stand in. Military are hard, uh, expensive to fund. They are. You look at the Second World War, it was drought, you know, I think they were, again, towards the 30s, the military was reduced, reduced, and I think about 30... I'm not an expert on this, but in mid-30s, they realised there was a threat with Nazi Germany, and they started building up. But, you know, militaries are not created overnight, no. Uh, you know, and again, we're, we're probably heading for that again, to be honest, and we'll probably get caught on the back foot. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I wonder if they'll do a call-up. Yeah. Because people aren't, the, the, the military, like every um, element of public sector, are struggling to get recruits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, what's the option to say, right, we'll make the military massive, but your taxes are going up. People ain't going to stand for that. No, they're not. Know? People aren't Not anymore. It, so. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the subject. This, I no. mean, this is just my personal view but I think we'll we'll be caught on the back foot and but you know I think we rise to the challenge but technology has evolved as well because you, you, the the type of warfare that from the Falklands up until uh, Iraq the, the warfare has changed now hasn't it dramatically massively well it I think each conflict is different as well yeah you know you, you look at uh, Iraq was with insurgents the Falklands was two armies against each other uh you know the Ukraine now uh 
you see with it, the Russians, I think the Russians have gone in with the old, their old style of training that they were they did when it was the Soviet Union, which might have worked when they had the equipment. Not so much now. No. They, you know, they're, they're a shadow of the former self. Oh yeah, they're not the force. You know? And they're reckon. still using kit from the sixties. Oh yeah, really, I don't know. And, yeah, you know, this stuff's been taken out with a. Two hundred thousand pound rocket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're you're in Munster. You're there for four years. What happens next? Well, uh, what I enjoyed about Munster, you know, I'm 19. I'm in Germany. Uh, I'm being paid to be there, and it was like great. So, like most military, I, I took the rough with the smooth. You know, we had to do exercises. Did two tours in Northern Ireland. Uh, attached the infantry, which I didn't expect. Around <laughs> Belfast, driving the armoured Land Rovers and the old pigs around Belfast. Yeah. Great experience, and looking back, I, I think I was probably a bit too young and naive to realise that it was a fairly dangerous situation because we'd grown up with it on the TV, and then to actually be on the Falls Road or the Ardoin was like, yeah, this is great. And I look back now and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if you could pay me to do that now. Uh, yeah, you just, bravado, young, I just thought it was great driving these great big armoured vehicles around Belfast. Uh, do you not think, I mean, Northern Ireland is a, it's a beautiful place, but it's so small, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you, you get into Belfast and it's literally, it's tiny. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I say, I've been to Ireland twice, Northern Ireland, and all I've seen was, uh, we obviously flew into, I think it was Aldergrove, and then it was in the back of a van to, I think, I can't, I don't know, somewhere in Belfast, and then it was in a van to, I did a tour in Gerwood Park and Woodburn. So I've only seen the bad parts about Belfast. Yeah. I never went out. I never saw anything outside Belfast. I've never been to Southern Ireland, never been to London, never seen the, the countryside. Oh, it's so beautiful. I, I'm, it's on my list of places yeah, to go. Yeah, you should do it, mate. You yeah. should fly over there and, and do yeah. it because it is beautiful and yeah. it, it still has its problems, but my family all live in Galway, so, yeah, yeah I would say it's beautiful. When you've, done, when you've done your tours, have you been promoted during any of this? So I got my Lance Corporal when I was in Germany. Uh, yeah, and I was there for about four years. And like I say, in the background, the drawdown of Germany was going on. Uh, and our regiment was to be sent back to Catrick. Uh, and I remember me thinking, yeah, I'm not ready to go back to the UK just yet. I fancy a little bit of time in Germany. And uh, I remember one of my uh, my troop commander spoke to him and said, look, there's any chance of getting another post in Germany? He said, I'm, you know, there's nothing to go back for. Because one of the things I did when I was in Germany... Like most soldiers, I went to Germany, first summer leave, I was straight back to the UK. And I remember going back to the UK, going to my local pub, and there was all the blokes and girls in there, and they were just stood there in the same position that I'd left like six months earlier. Yep. And I just thought, you haven't done anything. And I'd, I'd been off and I'd done Ireland, Canada, adventure training and driven around Europe. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing this. So every time I got leave... I went off travelling. I had a friend of mine and we, I had a car, so we used to jump in the car and we drove down to Italy and Spain and France. Uh, and I remember one Christmas, I think it was 92, it was just after the fall of the Soviet Union, or the, uh, the Soviet Union ceased to be, and we went out to Russia. And I thought, I need to see this before it's full of McDonald's. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we flew out to Russia... Did you need permission from Yeah, the- yeah, yeah. We, we had to get it was still because it was everything was still in place. So we yeah. got interviewed by the RMPs and said, when you're out there, they said, you know, don't take any bribes, don't, you know, don't sleep with any women. And if you see anything, let us know. So we, we flew to Moscow and then we jumped on the Trans Siberian Express. It was an organised tour. Fantastic. It was the German companies, to be honest. And it was quite funny. So all the uh, <laughs> all the guides were speaking German. And me and my mates were with these Germans going, I don't know what you're on about, man. <laughs> And, you know, we ended up in a place called Akutsk, right out in the middle of Siberia. And this is the early 90s, you know, it it was grim. It was, it was fantastic to see, but it was, you know, the place was, it was it was crumbling. 
we then flew back to Germany. We got debriefed when we come back. And I remember the, the RMPs debriefed us and said, you know, what did you see? And you were just like, well, you know, all sorts. You know, did you see any tanks? And I was like, yeah, saw some, you know. And then the following summer, we went to China and did the same thing. <laughs> and then they went to do the brief because they said, right, you're going to communist China. And I think by then our troop commander just went, oh, don't bother. There are a pair of lunatics, these guys. They'll be off somewhere. That they're not going to defect, I don't think. So we did the same thing in China. And, uh, yeah, we went travelling. And I remember going over to... Because the wall had come down. I thought, yeah, we need to get over to Eastern Europe. You know, And I remember going to Prague before it became fashionable. And it was something like £7 a... Uh, stay in a city apartment right in the city seven uh, city centre. It's like seven quid for a weekend. God knows what it is now. And I'm going to Poland, and they were suffering from hyperinflation. And it, I think it was eight thousand zloty for a, a glass of beer. And we just had our pockets were just stuffed full of notes, Polish zloty. It wasn't worth anything, you know. And uh, it was great to experience it, you know. And I think good now because I've been back since, and these places have changed. Yeah. And yes, they've become better, and it's it's good. But it was good to see them just as they came out of, you know, 60 years or 40 years of communism. Where did you go to in China? Uh, Beijing was the place we stayed at. We did go up to see the Great Wall. It was, it was again, it was an organised tour, so we, we got taken round. But, you know, we did a tour of Tiananmen Square and being like, you know, mm. 20 years old, me and my friend obviously asked some awkward questions to our tour guide, which was That's very was forward thinking, though. I mean, there's mm. a lot of young soldiers wouldn't be doing that. They'd, they'd be going back to their homes and, you know, down the British Legion for a pint because everyone will be yakking and yarning with them. But yeah, to yeah. go off and travel, that's quite a... Yeah, it was, I, I'm glad I did it. You know, I am glad I did it. And uh, the guy who did these trips with, uh, funnily enough, my very last tour of Afghanistan, we bumped into each other. on our, You know, he was finishing the same time as me. And, uh, yeah, we, we had a good old... Reminisce of the time. So you, you've done your travelling, you're in Germany. What happens next? So, uh, yeah, our unit got uh, sent back to Catrick. Uh, so we closed down the camp and then I got posted down to 7 Transport Regiment in Bielefeld. So tipped up there, made a load of new mates and again started the travelling thing again. Uh, I bought a motorbike by this time, I got my motorbike <laughs> licence, so I started doing a bit of travelling on a motorbike with some friends. Uh, we travelled about. Uh yeah, it, it was a good time in Bielefeld. I ended up being in Bielefeld till about 2001, so very fond. I've just come back from Bielefeld. I was there on Monday, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, so I still go over to see the place. Uh, anyway, while I was there, uh, I always ended up getting really good jobs for somebody. I always thought things happened for a reason. So I ended up running the Adventure Training Lodge down in the Hearts Mountains, just up the balloon. They said, right, we want you to go down there. I think I was down there for four months in this little wooden hut. I think it was right on the old East German border. And it was an old guard hut. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall, East Germany, they turned it into an adventure training lodge. So I was just down there on my own in civvies, you know, totally unmilitary. And I'd look <laughs> after this place and make sure there was enough oil in the, you know, the the the, the, the for the uh, uh, heaters and whatnot. Yeah. Keep the place and replace light bulbs. And units used to turn up and do adventure training for a few days and then disappear. That was great fun. Uh, totally off the net, you know, out there on my own, loving it. Uh and then during that time, I always remember that I popped back to the Bielefeld to pick up some kit and got told by a lady in the Naffy when I was buying some weekly shopping. She said, oh, you're off to Bosnia next week. And I thought, oh, that's good that the Naffy are telling us that. Uh, and then, yeah, we deployed to Bosnia for a uh, tour in 96 April. It was after the Dayton Priest Agreement, so we went out there as part of NATO. Right. Uh, what was that like? Uh, interesting. Interesting. Obviously, all the hostilities had come to an end, but it was a bit precarious. So we were based in Split, and we were running gas, fuel, uh, 
plastic knives and forks and paper plates up and around the place to make sure that NATO was still functioning. To drive around the country, and, you know, I'd never really... We'd heard of it in the news as the, the, uh, the conflict had bubbled over. Yeah. Uh, but to drive, go out there, it's fantastic, fantastic place. Very sad to see the damage. Uh Strange because we were in Croatia and I've been back there on holiday for several times now. I'm sure loads of people yeah. have. And it is just bizarre to think I was here with the military and I'm now on holiday. I can't see me going on holiday to Iraq and Afghanistan anytime soon. No. You know. Uh, but yeah, we got to travel around, see the country. Uh, yeah, absolutely stunning place. You know, if you get the chance to go, go and visit. Yeah, I'd like to go to Dubrovnik yeah. and split and yeah. yeah. Superb. So, brilliant tour, brilliant people, people, brilliant people we were with, uh, driving these old trucks around. Quite, you know, hostilities are finished, but there was a big risk with uh, traffic accidents because the roads weren't particularly good. The roads, I think they were made with, uh, I think they put marble in the tarmac. Wow. So when it rained, they were very slippy. And we were driving around on cross-country tyres, so it was like driving slicks. Yeah. Uh, and we did have a high accident rate, and a few people got injured through that. You know, the driving over these mountain passes, and some of the trucks, we had the fuel tankers, you know, the, again, very old bits of kit from many, many years ago. What was the reception like with the with the locals though? Because there's still a rub between the the different factions that are out there. Yeah, I remember there was one situation that sprung to mind. So I remember, I think it must have gone back to the war because I think the Allies were really they backed the Serbs. Yeah, the Croatians were on the side of the the uh, the Axis, and I remember crossing the boundary, stopping at the boundary somewhere to we stopped for a coffee, and. We were going into the Ser, uh, the Serb part, so we sort of felt a little bit safer. And then the Germans were going from the Serb area into the Croatian, and they were saying they were feeling safer, yeah, a little bit, you know. And it was, yeah, it was quite strange. But generally, the the people we met, or the people we dealt with, uh, yeah, they, they were fine. A lot of them were businessmen, you know, like the the cafe owners used to pull over on the side of the road. I, you were just money. You yeah, know, you, the court come in, have yeah. some, have some. They couldn't care less as long as you were yeah, spending. Yeah, you were just money. Yeah, it's, it's strange, and it, that, but that's recent history, isn't it? Yeah. And the atrocities that took place over over there. And what was nice, I went back last year with a friend. He didn't serve there, but he, he was interested in going out. So we, we we got a cheap flight out to Sarajevo, and drove around the country. And I was blown away by how forward the country has come. Really, you know. Uh, yes, there's still a lot of damage visible, but you know, I remember going to Sarajevo and driving down these little roads to get into the city centre, into the town city. And like now, there's a three-lane motorway that goes through mountains, and the motorways make UK motorways look awful. And I, I, I was blown away by how forward the country has come. But I was chatting to a guy out there. We did a city tour, and he was an ex-Bosniak uh, policeman, uh, and he was saying about it's just it's just under the surface. It's still there. He was saying that it is the land of honey and blood. You know, they have years of prosperity. Then there's a war, prosperity war. Yeah. And he was saying with what's going on in Russia, it's. Uh, yeah, it's just under the surface, and you're thinking, reading the news, and you're thinking it, it could flare up again. Yeah, they don't forget in the, in some of these areas, they don't forget their history, and there will always be that rub between the different the different factions, I suppose. Yeah. What happens after after Bosnia? So uh, come back from Bosnia, and it was just back into normal duties uh, for the next few years. It was you know the old marching up and down the square, doing exercises. Did another tour of Bosnia again, going back to see it. Then it changed them from uh, it was still NATO, but it was drawn down. Peace was obviously been implemented, as the, so to speak. Uh, so we did another tour of that, and it was back to Germany. Uh, got promoted to corporal. 
ended up being the CEO's driver, which again fell on my feet with a little nice little job because again I was my own boss almost, so I didn't really have to answer to anyone. Uh, and then it got to about 2001, and I could see my route in the RCT is going down to a senior rank sergeant level above, and it's basically like a fleet manager. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not for me. That doesn't look particularly interesting. Uh, now, as a driver, we sh- uh, well, when I was in Bielefeld, we shared the camp with 24 transport regiments who were a movement controller right. regiments. The movement controllers are the military logisticians. Okay, there's about only about three to four hundred in the military. Uh, they have a lot of civilian staff, and these are the people who basically make things happen. You know, when you see the military in places. They've got them there, whether it be by uh, boat, plane, truck, taxi even. <laughs> so they do that. And I thought, yeah, that looks interesting because, you know, you, you, you're using your brain a bit more and they tended to go on little detachments. They didn't do so much of the army marching up and down the square stuff, which really appealed to me. And I thought, I'd like to do some real-time work. And plus, they always seem to be staying in hotels. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember bumping him into in Poland, and we were just sleeping next to the trucks out on the training area in January, you know, minus 10. It was awful. But yeah, the, the moving controllers were in the hotel down the road. Yeah, I remember, were... That was the, I was thinking, yeah, I'm sold. That's I'm, a job I'm for me. A bit of that. And at that point in the military, they, they, they had a bit of a retention issue uh, with soldiers. So they, I remember they were pushing, instead of getting out, they said, retrade to another job. Uh, the movement controls were also the Royal Logistic Corps that the RCT had become, I think it was back in 93. They amalgamated several uh, you, uh, cap badges. I think, what was it? Uh, service, uh, Ordnance Corps, the chefs and whatnot, and they just made them into yeah. the RLC, the really large corps. Uh, so we had become the RLC. So it was RLC to RLC, so it wasn't a problem. So uh, 2001, just before 9-11, I went off to Deep Cut. People may have heard of yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. probably for the wrong reasons, but that's where the School of Logistics was. Uh, and it was there to become a mover. So it was almost like two steps back, but I was hoping to go three steps forward in yeah. regards to promotion and, and job satisfaction. So retraded and was subsequently posted to Marchwood, the military port in Southampton. Uh, basically, I was a corporal, but I was technically like a private because I'd only just done the course. So it was a few years just catching up with the trade, getting the experience, which came quickly, you know, and uh, it was fine. And then at Marchwood, I remember we were there for the second Gulf War. Uh, and that again, that was an interesting time because we just, overnight, we went on to 24-hour ops. And I've never worked so hard in my life. Really? Uh, it was about eight weeks of this kit just coming in the port constantly. Just containers, vehicles, armoured vehicles. And it was just never-ending. And the strange thing was, was, when we sent the last one, that was it. Then we literally like sat around. We just ended up playing football, and then the Gulf War started, and we were just waiting back at Marchwood. Uh, and then a period of time later, it then just all started coming back. All this equipment. So uh, what 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 were you loading? The RFA stuff? Or? No. So uh, it was uh, civilian ships taken up from trade. Right. So it was it was all sorts. Uh, we do have our own ships now, but they've only got about I think they've got six of them or something or four. I can't remember. So we were taking up these things from trade, and we would just load all units onto them containers. A lot of them were Russian, actually. Uh, I remember one episode where we would put a, uh, a protection force on there. I think about six or eight guys, and they were there to when it went through the Sioux. And we put these guys on this Russian ship. And we said, yeah, you're good. And they were like, yeah, fine. We said, right, we'll see you later. 20 minutes later, one of them come over and said, you need to take us down to uh, Tesco's now. He said, all they've got on this ship is literally boiled cabbage. 
And they said, we cannot eat boiled cabbage. So he said, you need to take us down to Tesco's. We're going to buy a job lot of pot noodles and uh, beans and stuff. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it was, again, interesting time. Interesting time loading ships. Yeah, I, I bet. And you, you're seeing the, the products both ends, aren't you? You've seen the bits that come back. There's yeah. probably less bits that come back than go out there. Well, it though. went out fairly accurately. You know, it was all went out in order. And when it came back, it was just thrown on the boats out there. Came back the port and we just, the port was just littered with equipment. So we didn't know who it was. And I remember we had to find out who belonged, who it belonged to and get it off to them. And then there was all the war trophies that came back. Yeah. You know, when we, we had a load of T-55s and all just lying around the port, these units. And I remember there was an anti-aircraft gun that turned up and somebody stole it. And... Uh, uh, we reported we had the MOD police there, yeah. and we reported said, "Look, somebody's stolen this, uh, this this gun," and they just said, "We can't do anything about it because said you've stolen it from Iraq." So he said, "Technically, we can't do anything about it." He said, "If Saddam Hussein comes up to the front gate tonight today and says, can I have my anti-aircraft gun back?'" He says, "Technically, we have to give it to him." So this anti-aircraft gun, I don't know where it went. Somewhere it's on someone's wall. Somebody, someone's yeah, garage. It's going to be on a wall. Yeah, somebody yeah. somebody's nicked it. It's on the wall somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the military are well known for their their souvenirs. If it's not screwed down, it will come home with them. <laughs> and so you've you've then moved on from Southampton. So Southampton uh, got promoted, sergeant, uh, and posted to Shorncliffe, uh down in Kent. Right, well, uh, for a couple of years, which was really great. Uh, nice part of the country. Uh, I was only there for I think for eighteen months. I got promoted again within eighteen months, fairly quick. I got promoted to staff sergeant. Uh, and sent out to Cyprus. So attached uh, or unattached? Uh, attached uh, to the RAF and RAF Akrotiri. Oh, and I ended up working in the Joint Service Support Unit down at Limassol Port, basically oh. running the port. So civilian clothes for two years. Nice. Didn't touch a weapon for two years. Uh, did have to wear the uniform because we used to get sent out to Jordan and Israel to do these little jobs now and again whenever we were buying stuff or sending stuff to them. So we'd go out there and. Uh, offload because we were the nearest movers so but yeah two years in Cyprus what a lovely fantastic job. you know I was literally in tears when I got posted <laughs> back <laughs> I bet yeah yeah so Cyprus is a great a great place and it's well connected with the British military yeah. as well isn't it when you came back where did you go to so uh, I got a posting back to Germany which I was over the moon with you know I thought great it was sad to leave Cyprus uh, got posted back to Germany January it was. I was a bit miserable. You know, mm. Come from the nice Cypriot sun to a German winter. Uh, back to twenty four regiment in Bielefeld. So I was I was back on uh, familiar ground, uh, and I was there from two thousand and eight till I finished in two thousand eleven. Right, so another three years there, which was a great three years. Great unit, great bunch of people, uh, some great times. Did and you get picked up again in that? No, no, no. Uh, I was getting towards the end. I had one last shout at pr- promotion right at the end, and I just missed out because they, they don't promote you in your last two years, uh, and I just missed out. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know. But in that time, you've been to Afghanistan. Yes. So uh, I'd got back there. I'd done a first tour of Iraq. Uh, the unit we were in, a lot of these tours were last minute, so it was literally like you'd come into work on a Monday and they'd say, "What are you doing this weekend? Having a barbecue." No, you're not. <laughs> Pack your gear, you're off out. So I got sent out to Iraq for the drawdown. Uh, so I was one of the guys out there that did the drawdown of Iraq right at the end. What was that like? Uh, busy, busy. I was only out there for about two months, but we moved, I think six. I think it was 6,000 people back, and I, I physically typed all 6,000 names onto a flight manifest. 
Uh, I think we got down to 200. There was 200 left, and then I, I shipped out. Wow. So, yeah, 5,800 names I typed onto a manifest. And uh, and all their equipment? Then uh, all their equipment? Their equipment, a lot of equipment was left, you know, not not the, the uh, sort of sensitive equipment. So there was a lot of stuff that they just left behind and they sold to the locals. Uh, but, yeah, interesting. Everything was drawn down back. And, uh, yeah, we, we were pretty much left. I think they were left alone. Uh, there was one episode where the camps were protected by the... Have you seen the flat phalanx guns uh, like they used to have on the ships? And they, they were yeah. like uh, Gatling guns, and they would basically shoot the mortars at the sky. And while I was there, not really much happening. And then they said, we're going to switch these things off. It got down to there was like a few hundred people. said, so we're going to switch them off at midnight on this day. And they must have known. Literally two minutes past midnight when they switched off, the incoming rounds came in. You know, so somebody somewhere knew that these things were getting switched off. Uh, thankfully, that was the last one, and then it was out to Kuwait, back to the UK, job done. So, what was the atmosphere like though? Is you, you've got six thousand people that are, are transitioning back to. They just wanted to go home. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of them were milling about. Obviously, the RAF were with the, uh, the the fleet transport. You know, the VC tens and the the yeah. uh, what the tri stars, and anybody in the military remembers that these things were coming to the end of the career. You know, end of the life. So they were quite often going tech, breaking down. And uh, yeah, a lot of guys get frustrated, you know, because they were just hanging about and there's nothing to do. There's no. nothing to do there. Uh, but, you know, we got them out. Uh, we had a bit of fun. I used to, I spread a rumor about that we'd have to have one person on each flight who was like in charge of everybody and nobody ever wanted to do it. So I started a rumor to saying uh, they would go down to Kuwait and then they'd be put on a, a charter flight back to the UK. And the person in charge would get a bottle of champagne. <laughs> so within a couple of days, every time I, I, I put the manifest for these people, people would contact me saying, I'll, I'll be in charge, I'll be in charge. And I was like, brilliant, here you go. I didn't have to pick anyone. Because whenever you pick somebody, said, no, pick him, don't yeah, pick me. Yeah. You know, so this room got round, they were going to get a bottle of champagne, and yeah, I didn't have to pick anyone anymore. How did they come back from Q8? They weren't on commercial flight. Uh, no, so it was uh, we, we flew them, uh, Herx, I think it was, possibly, did we have the C-17? It's a long time ago now. Yeah. Bit phased. But anyway, we shifted them down to, they went down to Kuwait, I think, and then it was, uh, yeah, Siver, basically all VC-10s out of the, a mixture, back to the UK via Cyprus for the old, uh, they used to do the decompression, 24 yeah. hours in Cyprus. Uh, I think that's how we did it, you know, so it's all getting a bit I um, misty in there's the a, There's a great author called Ian Moore who is he's, he's brilliant and he used to go and do decompression stuff out in Cyprus. He tells quite a harrowing story, actually, about his contact with some of the young squaddies there who weren't recovering particularly well after their deployment to Afghanistan and to Iraq. You mm. know, it's um, yeah, it's, it's quite some of it's quite harrowing. But yeah, because the, the the coming back from these tours is uh, people will probably agree with me. It's the coming back is quite strange. Yeah, you know, I I wasn't frontline troops, but to even just come back and then you just back at home. And then you just go in, right? It, it's just, it's weird, you know. Yeah. You go down the supermarket, and it's just like life carries on. Yeah, no, nobody cares. And if you've lost somebody from the regiment, you know, in theatre, you've there's almost a, a, and I've got friends who have. It's almost an element of guilt. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I can't imagine what the guys, you know, no. uh, friends and come back. I, I can't imagine how no. strange it must have been. Yeah, and it's, I've, as I say, I've got a couple of mates who have been involved in conflicts where they've lost people right next to them and um yeah there's an element of guilt even though they've got this big bravado roughy tufty 
front, yeah. it's it, I find it particularly difficult. Yeah. So when you you're you're back here, and then you get sent to Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, so I get a, another fastball uh, again. You know what you're doing this weekend? Uh, going shopping? No, you're not. Uh, and I end up in Kabul, attached to the American Army. Wow. So this was the time of Obama did a troop surge into Afghanistan. And uh, somebody somewhere thought there might be an issue. This stuff's coming in by air. It's coming in by land. There might be an issue getting this stuff coming in, you know, bottlenecks going into the country. So a few of us got deployed out there. There was a couple of us up in Kabul, attached to the American equivalent of the movement controllers. I had a friend of mine who was down on the border. Uh, we had another guy down in, I think it was uh, Karachi. And this stuff's coming in. And potentially it could have been a problem. Could have been a problem. But this just puts the size of the American military into context. So the job I was doing was monitoring the land route from Karachi up into the Afghan border. And there was two border crossings. Uh, There's a southern one and a northern one. We tended to use the southern one, not so much the northern one. And my friend who was down there, he was monitoring this coming across. And it was hard because this stuff comes up by, you know, roads. And it's not got a big sticker on it saying property of MOD or the American no. You know, it's, it's in container. So we were struggling to work out what it was. Anyway, we'd do these daily briefings and we'd have to brief on how much stuff's coming across the border. And the Americans were like, you know, we had 400 containers come over the border today, okay. And Britain, we had three. 400. So you were like, yeah, this is not an issue, you know. And it was like, I'm not too sure why we need to be here now, you know. And that job lasted for about four months. And it did, it just made me wonder the size of the American army. And I remember at the end of that tour, we went down to... Uh, I can't remember, we went, went to another camp somewhere and I remember them saying the Americans had more helicopters on this one camp than the entire British military. And it just, you think, they're, they're big. The, yeah. the American army is massive. We, I, it, we, we struggled, I struggled to comprehend the size of it. But you look at the number of casualties they had as well. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it was that. almost um, expected that they'd lose a certain percentage, so they'd, they'd over-inflate the numbers, and, I mean, there's no consolation to the families that lost their nearest and dearest, but it, it appeared to be like that. Yeah. Did you see any much aggravation down there? We, in Kabul, yeah, we, we well, a lot of it was IDF in, in direct fire into Kabul airports, yeah. which was very inaccurate. Uh, we had to go down into town now and again, or over to other camps to do things and whatnot, paperwork. And I remember the Americans... They were on the camp in Kabul. It was a Europe, a NATO camp, and they didn't like the cuisine. You know, they couldn't get on with sausage rolls, and you know, it, they were trying to cater for all European tastes. So there was a lot of French food, and you know, sausage rolls and pasties and stuff, and they couldn't quite get it with it. And there was a camp in Kabul, and they used to go there for burgers. And they used to say to me, "Do you want to come with us over to this camp for a burger?" And I remember thinking, "I'm not leaving the the safety of the camp <laughs> for a burger. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lose my life for the sake of a burger." And uh, yeah, uh, I always turned them down. And we did, uh, we did lose a guy uh, out there. Was an American guy. He was our IT guy. And we, they used to travel around the town a lot in just armoured uh, like uh, Toyotas. Yeah. And they were like provide like a taxi service. And uh, yeah, I remember him. He had to go over to one of the other camps to get some stuff. And yeah, drove past a huge IED. You know, this this armoured Toyota didn't stand a chance. You know, killed the crew. And uh, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, it was probably the closest I got because I remember I was dealing with him a few days. You know, I was getting him to burn me some CDs for, uh, for you know, uh, work. It wasn't music and stuff, you know, and he had these CDs and, you know, and then two days later, you know, he's, he's dead and it brings it home a bit. 
Yeah, yeah, it does. And I just think of all those tragic losses, if I look at the news now and the issues that they've got in Afghanistan, I wonder sometimes whether all those lives are worth it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, That's terrible. That's a terrible thing to say. It, it, it is. You know, I, you just think, did we lose the will? I think, have they done this to maybe think, you know, the Afghan will probably, the Af- or the Taliban, will they, you know, defeat themselves? Will they turn on each other? And would it be cheaper to let them do that? I, lots of things go through my head. And you do think, what what was it all for? You know, but I think after 20 years, you know, people can get war weary. Oh, massively. You know, populations, governments, you know, countries. I, I suppose, that certainly with the Americans, um, their politics are aligned to conflict yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And, and the, the popularity around um, the conflict in Afghanistan was, was dwindling. And whether it was a vote winner or vote loser, I don't know, but... Yeah, it's, it's bloody sad. Because you've written your book, Licking the Taliban's <laughs> Flip Flop, <laughs> which is available in all good book outlets. Well, Amazon. 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 Well, self-published. Yeah. Uh, self-published. So, yeah. So, uh, this will bring me on to the, the sort of uh, twilight of my career. So, I finished in Germany, and I managed to get a post and finally back to the UK. Ended up doing 24 years in, low, in, in the military. And the last few years, I thought, right, I need to go back to the UK because I need to sort my life out, I need to think what what's next on the agenda. So I got back there, and it was uh, 29 regiments in South Cerny, and it was a little bit back into the marching up and down the square, you know, and I thought, this, this is going to drive me bananas. And at this point, I know I'm not going to get promoted, so I'm starting to basically switch off, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not particularly interested, just do the time, take the pension. And uh, in the unit, and it, it was just a bit grim, and I thought, this is going to be a bit sad for the last 18 months. And uh, anyway... I hear about a job going, they're deploying to Afghanistan and they need uh, basically an ATLO, a transport liaison officer in Kandahar Air Base. Little debt, one staff sergeant, a couple of lance corporals, and I thought, I wouldn't mind that. So I went to see a friend of mine who's the, the ops warrants officer and she got me down for it. And I was thinking, you know, last tour, bit of extra cash before I get out. Brilliant. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so deployed there in the November 2011. Uh, and yeah, it was an interesting tour. So six months up at Kandahar, lot of indirect fire every two to three days. But again, not very accurate. Uh, initially, you think this this is this is going to be quite bad. But I think Kandahar, then the population was thirty to thirty five thousand. This camp is massive. You know, people say Bastion. Just the camp. Yeah, I drove round it one day, and it took me an hour and a half to drive round the perimeter. Wow. It was huge. And you think, when I was there in six months, they killed, I think, one guy with IDF. There was more heart attacks than there were people. Right, yeah. The biggest threat, to be honest, was uh, getting run over because a lot of the camp wasn't lit, it was dark. Uh, we did have to wear, like, this high-vis because, you know, people driving around in these 15-ton armoured vehicles, you know, and if they run over you, then all they're going to know is that one of the tyres has turned to a... Yeah. It's got a load of tomato ketchup around the tyre. So yeah, that that the you know on hindsight looking, the IDF was coming in, and uh, but yeah, the biggest threat was being ran over or possibly dying of a heart attack. So yeah, six months out there, good tour, interesting. Uh, my job was basically loading the aircraft. So we'd have into theatre flights. We'd have these Hercs that were based at Kandahar. They weren't based at Bastion because they had no real estate. So they were based at Kandahar, and they would fly from Kandahar, Bastion, Kabul, and they would just do that two a day, one at night, I think, and. Uh, 
we would basically process the manifest and put people on. We were basically like a military wing of Ryanair checking staff. Yeah. Uh, and this was open to all sorts of, uh, all NATO. So, you know, we'd get mainly Americans, but we'd get Germans, all sorts. We'd put them on these aircraft. Uh, and it was interesting because it would be like two hours of really busy and then nothing to do for six hours as this aircraft went off and flew around Afghanistan. Then it would come back and we'd get the people off, put them on a coach, take them back to the terminal. Now, at this point, there was a lot of civilian contractors out there. And this is what I was thinking. I need to make some notes of this because it just seems to be a bit absurd. So I was doing a job out there that we the taxpayer was paying for, and there was a civilian company also doing the same job. So basically, when we checked in staff, I would be there watching my Lance Corporal. Next to him, I had a, civ- a civilian counterpart who I'd keep one eye on him. To my left, there was a guy, civilian contractor, doing my job, keeping an eye on me, keeping an eye on my Lance Corporal, and keeping an eye on this guy. And I just thought, this is... Oh, we could run with this out this guy but you know he could either he could do it or I could do it either I don't need to be here or he doesn't need to be here why are we both here and this guy was on I don't know what he was on loads you know tax yeah free. yeah of course and I thought this is barking mad so I started taking some notes and uh, I thought this is the last tour and then that's what I thought well, this should go down on paper really uh, and the tour was uh, I tried to capture the humorous elements or, you know, the, the things like this with people doing other people's jobs. Yeah. Uh, now, I read Spike Milligan as a kid. One of the first books I read is, is you know, My Part in His Downfall. Downfall, yeah. And I think it stuck me. And I read them several times, and I read them, re- reread them recently. And I think that shows in the book. Now, the backdrop was the Afghan conflict. And, you know, I can't take away from that. It was a serious time. But I've tried to capture the elements that the British do best, which is the humour and the coping mechanisms. Uh, and it's basically a book of it's almost short stories and observations, and I've geared it up for the civilian market really, uh, because it's it's taken off of the military market because people read it and go yeah I remember that and that's really good. But I've tried to aim it at the civilians because before I started the book when I eventually got out I thought I'm going to do a creative writing course. I left school with zero qualifications. I thought I'm going to do a creative writing course. And uh, did this course and it was great. And part of the homework, we'd have to write these bits, stories. So I wrote a bit from my book and I read it out to the class. And the class was full of, you know, there was a couple of teenagers, a couple of old ladies, you know, a couple of, a couple of guys, older guys and stuff. And they all just went, that, that's just bizarre. He goes, I've never heard. He goes, you heard about people going to war and, you know, up the front line. He goes, we didn't know all this went on in the background. No. And I thought, yeah, I think I've got a market here. I think I've got an idea. Now, that wasn't the main thing for publishing the book the reason behind writing the book was for me kids because they used to just see me disappear off six months and I initially said and I've got the names in the front of the book because I wanted them to know this is what the dad got up to when he disappeared Good for, for six you. months this is what they wanted to do so then informing the civilians and selling the book is second. Is the second part of it really uh, and the, the kids have wrote it and they, they think it's fantastic and it, they can now see day to day what I was doing. Have you put it into an audio book? No, that, I have got the plan to do that. Uh, do if anybody out there has got any tips, uh, I'm not an expert on it. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite open for doing that uh, and that is on my list of things. I've been meaning to do it for a couple of years uh, and yeah, it's, I need to get that ticked off and get it in an audio book. Well, we can talk about that off yeah. off of here, but yeah, yeah, you do because I think it's a it's a great idea. And and like you say, people don't understand that the mechanisms of 
of conflict. They think that it's everyone's going out and fighting. They don't realise that there's a huge industry yeah. directly behind every conflict. Yeah, the, the loggies, all the the whole yeah. lot. It's like you know, not everyone in the RAF is a pilot. You no, know, not everyone in the army is in the infantry. And I remember chatting to uh, civilian friends, you know, and they always say you're in the army, and they normally ask you, you know, you know, bet you can't talk about it. You ask away. And then they normally say, did you kill anyone? Did you kill anyone? You think, well, no, not personally, but no. I was involved in an industry that yeah. resulted in death, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just possibly, you know, just trying to get that across. I mean, there's a lot of Afghan books out there from the guys up at the, the, the sharp end. I take nothing away from this fantastic what they've done, you know. But I, I think there's, there's less books talking about uh, the day-to-day army. You know, the guys sometimes will get called remps and stuff, you know. You know, without us, you know, they wouldn't have the bullets on the front line. No, exactly. You know, we need dentists, we need mechanics, we need yeah, we need right everybody. It's it's a game. It's a it's a team game. Well, it, the um, I can't remember what regiment he went in with, but it, a, a, a family friend was a, a chef, and during the first Iraq conflict, the army needs to you know they march on their stomach at the end of yeah. the day, and he's he's in the tank. Going across the border, you know, there he is on BBC News or whatever it is. But he was a chef. Yeah. Because you need to have these people yeah. as part of the... It's an intrinsic part of, yeah. of, of war. I mean, we are soldiers first. Yeah, of course. next, but, you know, we do the trade more than we do the soldiering. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, that that was our bread and butter. You know, when it comes to, you know, infantry tactics, yeah, I, we weren't particularly good, but, you know... We weren't meant to be. But you look at logistics, you know, you look at what's happening in Russia, the Russian logistics, totally different setup, I believe. Mm. Uh, you know, debatable how, how good they're doing. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, they're being sent snowplows in the summer and uh, yeah. air conditioners in the winter. You know, that, that's what you can end up having and it just goes pear-shaped. What was it like when you, when you transitioned out? How did you feel when you handed across your ID and all the, the stuff that... So it, it's actually quite a fairly long process, uh, you know, so you do need to start thinking quite far out what you're going to do. There's quite a lot of options open to you. There's quite a lot of free training, and uh, but you've, you've you've got to go hunting for some of it. It's not always offered it up to you on a plate. And uh, I thought, right, I'm going to be out. What am I going to do? Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I did a uh, logistical course, a humanitarian aid course. It was uh, military paid for it. I had a bit of time out there, so I did that. And at this point, I thought, I've no idea what I'm going to do. And I was always a big believer of things happen for a reason. Yeah. Anyway, come back from that tour, and this was right, right, I'm, I'm now in the last few months. And uh, I remember I'd always wanted to fly a plane, always wanted to be able to fly. I basically never had the money. Uh, I'd been diagnosed as colourblind uh, when I was early days of being in the army. I went for air dispatch selection, the guys who took the kit out the back of Herc's. And that was the days. Remember, you used to do the eye test with the dots. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I did it, and I couldn't see the numbers. And they just went, "Yeah, you're colour blind." And they went, y- "You can't chuck things out of back of planes because you need to be, you need to tell the difference between red and green." So you can't do it. And I thought, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm never going to fly." And uh, I thought, "What I'll do? I'll go and get a medical." And I did the medical, and he said, "Yeah, colour blind." He says, "You can fly, but not, not at night." And I thought, "Well, that, that's all right." Okay, so I went off to do my private pilot's le- uh, license down at uh, Kemble it was the RAF flying club down there and while I was learning to fly uh, I started off with an RAF instructor nice guy it was a bit boring he was alright uh, and then there was an ex-army guy well he was still army actually and he was air dispatch funnily enough and he was a good laugh and I ended up learning to fly with him 
and he said to me, and he had done his instructor rating, got his commercial license, got his instructor rating while he was in the army many, many years ago. And he said, why didn't you become a flying instructor? And initially I thought, you're having a laugh, aren't you? You know, I can barely just keep a flame straight and level. Uh, and he says, they're crying out for him everywhere, they're crying out for him. And at this point, as, as the movement trade background I had, when I went to the old uh, career transition workshops, the things they were sort of trying to put you down was like project management, health and safety. Yeah, yeah. And every time they mentioned them, a little bit of me inside just died. And I thought, I don't really want to do that. And uh, anyway, got my private, li- private license. Uh, coming back onto the transition part of getting out of the army, I handed my kit in about three months before you actually get out. So the last three months, it's, it's like gardening leave. Actually, I think I blacked it. I got about four and a half months, actually. Right. At this point, you're just thinking, I'll take the money and run. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they handed me kit in, and the last few a few months getting paid, and I ended up getting a job in Coventry Airport as the ops manager for a flying school. Wow! Uh, at this point, I'd got my private license, and that was part of the criteria. They said you need to have a pilot's license. Private is okay because you need to understand what's going on. So I worked for them as I got out. There's a bit of overlap, uh, but I remember the last day because uh, I'd, I'd basically left about two months before. I'd left camp, handed me kit in, then I had to go back on the I think it was the fifth of August. 2013, went back, went in to see some clerk, give me ID card, and that was it. You know, you don't expect a fanfare, but you just hand your ID card in and just drive out the camp gates and go, that's a bit strange. Is that it? You know, yeah. You think, of course, they're not going to have a brass band and fireworks, but you do just drive out going, is that it? You know, I'd had the leave and do's and stuff. I'd been seen off by friends. So that actual moment sticks with you as you literally drive out the camp gates for the last time. And that was quite, quite, quite bizarre. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, okay. And it, you know, it, it, there's no there's no pomp, but no. they're not going to do anything. No. Uh, anyway, I was up at Coventry doing this job, and uh, I got chatting to somebody up there, and they said, you know, they've progressed from these tests for colour blindness. It's now not looking at the dots on the numbers. They've got a computer test. So I thought, okay, I thought, well, to be an instructor, you have to have basically a commercial medical which is the, the medical for a private license is fairly stringent, but the medical for a commercial license is very stringent. And I thought, okay. And they said, why don't you go down to Gatwick? They do this test and basically they, they can uh, they can now work out how colorblind you are or how colorblind you aren't. So I booked it, went down. The test was broken down into three parts. So it progressively gets harder. So I did the first one and they went, you're good. They said, you're a bit colorblind, but it's not that bad. Because I was always thinking, I can tell the difference between red and green. Not yeah. a problem, you know. I can tell that's a red light. You know, if it was a problem, I'd have had lots of car accidents by yeah. now. And yeah. I hadn't. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I passed that and thought, right, okay. So I uh, then got my class one medical for the commercial license. Uh, at this point, I'd met my current partner. And we decided to move in together. I was at, uh, living at Coventry. She was living in Somerset. And we decided to move to Kent and move in together. And I said, right, I'm going to go down the commercial route, which is going to involve a few years of training. And uh, she was really supportive. Her dad was ex-RAF, he was an ex-airpart, so she was like, oh, great, yeah, you know, do it. So we moved down to Kent, and I had to go back to school for six months. And it was at Stapleford up in Essex. Yeah. And it was back in the classroom for six months through the ground school. Now, anybody who's thinking of going down the commercial route, uh, the hardest bit is the ground school, because it is literally, it's the... Uh, passage into the Guild of Pilots. It's there to keep the idiots out. Because a lot of the stuff you learn on it is is, is useful 
and you need to know a lot of your stuff you're laying is just you think why, why are we learning this yeah but it's there to keep the uh it's a fire break yeah yeah it keeps the lunatics out of aviation and a lot of people find it hard because it's six months in the classroom you know you're not earning thankfully i had a pension and my my partner she was working so it was tight in the belt time you know yeah yeah but i ended up in this classroom for six months there was me i was about 43 at the time and i'm in this classroom with a load of 18 year olds and uh, there was another guy in there, actually. He was, uh, he was an ex-banker. He was about 33. So I got on with him, all right. But, you know, all these 18-year-olds, all these kids, and they used to drive me bananas because they lived on site and they were constantly late every morning. And I'm sat in the back going, just turn up on time, just turn up yeah. on time. So that was six months. Uh, it was Yeah, it was hard. Very hard, academically really hard. You know, I had to go onto YouTube and learn how to do algebra again and oh, trigonometry. No. You know, uh but I knuckled down. Six I didn't learn months. it first time. I wouldn't no. be able to learn it again. Well, I don't think I, I think I skipped school <laughs> that day. So six months of hard work, uh, and I finished. And me and another guy, we we finished first. We we finished bang on about f- yeah, just under six months. Uh, some of the other guys they failed, and that's go back and do resets. Uh, and I was quite past. I was quite chuffed. I passed everything first time. Done pretty quick. Uh, and then that was the easy bit. And the next bit was just you know build some hours, uh, which was quite cool. So I did some trips with a friend of mine up to Scotland, over to Europe. Uh, tried to make the most of it, building the hours and going places yeah, right around the UK. And then it was onto the commercial license, which is at that point you can fly. Uh, it's basically it's flying accurately. So you get a private license where you learn to fly and you can learn from flight to A to B. Get a commercial license, it's in the same aircraft, but basically you're doing more accurate flying, uh, learning how to be more efficient. And what the commercial license is on its own is not anything, it's a bit like a bus license, it just means you can fly and get paid on its own you can't actually do anything so uh you have to do something to it now just one for your viewers to give them an idea because people presume if you've got a commercial license you can fly jets there's actually three licenses in the industry so there's the private pilot license which a lot of people just do for fun means you can fly around for fun take your mates up take your mum up commercial license which then just means you can earn money while flying but you have to have something connected to that like an instructor rating uh, and then there's the uh, transport pilot license. Right. So I did the commercial and the instructor rating so I can teach. The people then normally go down the uh, transport pilot's license. They do multi-engine training, multi-crew training, uh, instrument training, and they end up with a what they call an air transport pilot's license. And that's the job you get when you join, you know, that's the license you need when you join Ryanair to go and fly the big jet to Malaga and back. Right. Uh, and I was never going to do that route. One, because I didn't have the money, because it, it, it's an expensive game. And two, I just thought, I don't want to be flying from UK to somewhere like Naples in a Ryanair. And then people say, where were you today? I was at Naples. They go, were you really? Because you probably never got out of the cockpit and you've just flown straight back. And it, it, it didn't interest me, like to be honest. Uh, like I said, it's an expensive game. I used the old uh, golden handshake from the military to yeah. fund this. And to be honest, when I got to the end of my instructor rating, there was nothing left in the bank. The bank was empty. Uh, I got the instructor rating and Stapleford offered me a job straight away. Generally, most people who do the instructor course there, they will give you a job. Uh, and hey, presto, I was now employed at Stapleford, well, self-employed, self-employed right. as a, a flying instructor. How fantastic is that? How much does it cost for somebody to go through their licence? If today I wanted, and I have to say I don't, but if I wanted to go down the route of becoming a private I have a private licence. So the, the cost for a private licence, uh, again, it's not going to be mega accurate, but if you budgeted for about £12,000, wow. you know, you might do it less, you might a bit more. So you've got to account for the flying. Yeah. You've got to do a certain amount of hours before you can take the test, 
which is 45 hours. Majority of people take about 50 to 55. Right. Very few people do it at 45. You've got to pay for a medical. You've got to buy some equipment. You've got to buy a headset. You've got to buy some, uh, what they call an e-board, and, you know, a flight bag, and you get all this stuff. You also have to pay for the exams. So I generally say if you budget for about £12,000, you should be able to get, at most airfields in the UK, you should be able to get a private pilot's licence. And that will basically enable you to fly about, uh, whether it just be to local airfield or you could fly across Europe if you've got the uh, the confidence. Wow. But you can take your mates up. If you want to do a commercial, before you start the commercial, you've got to build about 175 hours. Uh, most aircraft, got, again, wildly varies. You know, you can get aircraft £130 an hour to £180 an hour. So, you know, you do the sums, times up, you know. You'll already have 40 to 50 hours under your belt, so you've still got to build about another 120, maybe more. You do the sums at £180 an hour. You know, it, it's quite expensive. Yeah. Plus, whenever you land anywhere away, you generally have to pay a landing fee. So it, it can add up. The commercial licence... Funnily enough, it's 25 hours, but it's only about... Uh, well, it may have changed that. When I did it, it was about £10,000 right. for a commercial licence. And you do that on a... Uh, it's a more expensive aircraft because you have to do it on what's called a complex aircraft. So it's got undercarriage that goes up and down. Oh, I see. And the, what, you've got a variable prop, so the propeller moves so you can go faster and slower. So it's a little bit more complex. Are they the sorts of aircraft that um, jockeys zip around the, the country? In yeah, a, possibly. A... It's, it's, it's only a single propeller. So you end up with a, an SCP, a single-engine piston licence. Uh, yeah, so th- that's done on a complex aircraft. Uh, not particularly hard. And basically what it's doing is just getting your flying more accurate. So, for example, when you're on test and they say, take me to Colchester, and you have to say, right, we're going to be at Colchester in five minutes. And if you're there in seven minutes, it's a fail. Really? Yeah. So... Uh, from that, I then did the instructor rating. I mean, commercial, commercial license, coming back onto that, I hated it. It was horrible because they, they train you up to a certain level that you you take the test. If I sat a test now, I, I, I'll probably just about scrape through, but they train you up. It's a bit like driving, you know, you've got to, your hands yeah, attentive. Yeah, yeah. You've got to do everything by the book. Everything is by the book. I then did the instructor rating, which was super interesting. So you... you do things on that, but it's instructing. I was an instructor in the army, you know, I was a HGV instructor, motorbike instructor, so it came naturally to me. Uh, but it was a really enjoyable course, and funnily enough, the guy who taught my, did my instructor rating lives in Whitton. Oh, right. So uh, I was stopped off for a cup of tea on the way up, and I was hoping to bump into him, but oh, I didn't cool. see him. But uh, yeah, super interesting course, and you do some aerobatics or spinning. Uh, and by this point, you now understand, and you do look back to when you got a PPL, where you thought, yeah, I've got a pilot's license. And at this point, you look back and go, I don't think I actually knew what was going on. So you understand the dangers now. And even then, so when you finish all this, you've probably got about 240 hours in your logbook. And you go, yeah, I've got a commercial license. Now I'm up to, uh, I think it must be 3,000 hours plus. Right. But I now look back to when I first passed and go, yeah, I probably wasn't that good. That was okay, but it wasn't brilliant. And at 3,000 hours, they generally said about 1,000 hours, you can consider yourself an half-decent pilot. Wow. And do people come to you direct or do they go through the flying school to get your services? So uh, just to go on how it came about, so when I got the, uh, off the job at Stapleford as self-employed, uh, I worked there for about a year, year and a half, uh, just doing teaching or doing trial flights, you know, taking up people's mums and dads' yeah, yeah, yeah. flight experiences. So I did that for about a year and a half just to get the experience, build, build the time. 
Now, at this point, some of the guys I'd taught had gone on to get the, the private pilot licence. What would happen is they, they wouldn't fly very often, so they'd have to come back to me for a check flight. And I was going, well, you know, haven't you been flying? You know, why do you not fly? Go go and fly somewhere. And they go, I haven't got the confidence. You know, new pilots, you know, flying up there. It can be quite scary. Yeah. The same sort of thing would be like passing your driving test on a Monday, you know, and then saying, right, yeah, but Tuesday morning. You're not two and a half thousand feet up in the air, though, are yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> or Tuesday morning, say, right, you're driving into central London. So I get it. You yeah. Know, so people, when they fly, they will fly locally. So I thought, you know, there's, there's I, I start taking people here, take them over to France, uh, you know, take them up to Scotland, sort of take them a bit further. So I started doing that with some. I started short by just going over to France, over to the Channel Islands, oh, you know, brilliant. over to Wales. And then it just grew out of that, and a lot of people more co- started contacting me. And as I flew further afield, I then built up these contacts around Europe and Scotland. Uh, and it's just progressed from that. So I've now... And then I started using social media, free platform, which is great, and people were contacting me on the internet. Uh, I took a guy down to Croatia. On my first trip to Croatia, I took a guy, the aviation world may know of him, the flying reporter, a guy called John Hunt, really nice guy. And we'd been chatting on the internet, and I said, I'm going down to Croatia, and he flies, and he said, I said, why don't you follow us? And he came down to Croatia, and he, he he's an ex-BBC journalist, so he's filmed it and put it into nice YouTube stuff, and it's, it's all edited really well, way beyond what I could do. You know, I'm taking a photo on my iPhone or something. And he, he edited it and put it out there, and the amount of people that came to me after that and said, I saw you on the Flying Reporters channel, can we go down to Croatia or Poland and whatnot? And uh, it's, it's just come from that. So I still do instruct him. Uh, that's still my bread and butter, but I do a lot of trips. So I've literally just come back from Germany yesterday. So went out on Monday to Germany, night in Germany, then went down to Austria, uh, then across to France, and then back. got back yesterday about 6 o'clock, back into Stapleford. Wow. With uh, two PPL pilots who just wanted to go to Europe. So showing them how to uh, do the immigration procedures into the EU, how to do flight plans, uh, just building the confidence, saying, look, going into new airfields, it's not that hard. We went into Salzburg, which is a big, scary airfield, on paper, reality is it's probably the easiest airfield to fly into. And they're now going, yeah, we'll do that on our own. You know, So they're now planning How brilliant a few weeks to jump in a plane and just do it on their own. What sort of aircraft do you fly over? So just single engine planes. Uh, the main ones we fly, people have heard them, the old Cessnas, Cessna yeah. 172 or the Piper Warrior. Uh, these are the aircraft of choice from flying schools because they're fairly tough. Uh, they're cheap to run. They're using old-style technology, carburettors, keeps the cost down. Uh, easy to fly they're not going to do anything dangerous you know you're not going to it's not going to flip you out the sky you know if it all goes pear shape you just let go of the controls and the plane will literally just fly itself really yeah so, super reliable yeah schools like them you know and people some go on to faster aircraft basically the faster you go in a plane the more cash it's eating you know yeah, you start putting superchargers on and fuel injection the price goes up and up and up but i do get a lot of people who contact me who own their own planes so you get a lot of uh Centre always seem to be XIT people or bankers, and they've bought a plane, and again they just need that you know pilot sat in the right seat. Confidence sure. boost. Yeah, confidence building really, uh, and I've I've met some fantastic people over the years, and I've been some fantastic places. I've been offered ferry flights as well, uh, which I've done the odd one, uh, but one of the things I don't like doing is flying over water in a single engine plane because if that propeller stops, you're going. In There's the only water. one place you're going to. Yeah. And I've been. I got offered a, a take a single engine plane up to Iceland, and I just went nah. You know, after being in the military for that long, because you go up that way. You know, if the engine stops and you go in the water. You know, the, <laughs> the, the there's no lifeboat coming to get you. No, you're just literally writing your will in the water. And I suppose the hop from 
the UK to France is so minimal. Yeah. You could glide across the... Yeah, 6,000 feet. You go Dover to Cap Grenay, which is in the closest point. Yeah, 6,000 feet is a problem. You can glide either side. Uh, there, there are times when you have to go over the water. I've been across the Adriatic. Uh, they've got the military have danger areas, for example. And if they're doing things in there like dogfights, you can't go into it. So I find myself having to go across the Adriatic, which is 60 miles, I think. Uh, yeah, sometimes you can't get round but you know you, you prepare for the worst you've got a life jacket on if you've got a dinghy you'll have it in the back uh, and you, you've got a plan you keep the fuel pump on you know and you just that's think, amazing like, if we go in the water we're going to find a boat hopefully we'll put down next to that And when you how many times do you have to stop then if you're flying to Croatia how many stops are there on that well the, the planes are they're not particularly big inside uh, these aircraft are probably 40 years old Right. Don't think it's forty years old like a car. It's forty years old, but it's got a new. They replace the engine every x amount of years or how many hours. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. it gets, uh, it's going to get some major service. You know, the wings come off, it gets stripped down and put back together. Uh, so, think of like a Ford Cortina. Not particularly big inside. They're not bad. Uh, now, all the aircraft are different. We 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 do them by endurance, not distance, because you know. People say, how far can you fly? Well, it depends what the wind's doing. The wind's behind you, you're going to fly further. The wind's on the on your nose. So we do it by endurance. So these are most aircraft, the big ones I fly, they will do about five to six hours before the propeller stops turning. Wow. However, you find after about two hours, you know, you need to be on the ground. You need a break. Legs, need the toilet. Uh, I've done some four-hour legs, but they're, they're quite hard. So generally, if we go to Croatia... It's normally over the water, clear customs at Le Touquet or Calais because you need the stamp in the passport. We clear then customs a couple of hours down to maybe sort of southern Germany, bit of fuel down towards maybe Salzburg for a leg stretch, a bit more fuel up over the Alps into Slovenia uh, and then down to Croatia. And in these aircraft, the aircraft I fly, they do about 90 knots. So Croatia is about a day and a half. You wow. could do it in a day, but you'd have to be off at six in the morning and have no delays. Some of the aircraft are flown as well. will do 150 knots. Yeah, you can get to Croatia in a day, no problem. But you know, you, you've That's got fascinating. You, you've got to take weather into account as well. You know, if there's a thunderstorm over the Alps, I was down by the Alps the other day. There was a load of uh, uh, thunderstorms over the Alps. You know, if you wanted to go over the Alps, you're not going over. And then we have a height issue with the Alps because these aircraft will. We can't go above 10,000 feet, right? Because you need oxygen. Uh, it doesn't mean at 10,001 feet you're going to pass out, but 10,000 feet is like the safe limit. Anything yeah, yeah, higher yeah. than that, you're going to start getting hypoxia and, you know, the worst could happen. So in the Alps, some of the peaks are 12,000 feet. So you might have an issue getting over. And it's to do with the heat as well. When the air, when it's hot, like we've had the heat, hot weather, the air is thinner, so the aircraft performs less. So I've been down over the Alps in the summer, and it will only go to 8,000 feet, and it will physically not climb any higher. Because it just every time you pull back, the speed drops off. Well, I never. And you you pick up these tips. So if there's any wind, you go and fly on one side of the mountain, and hopefully you get an updraft, and it might give you another five hundred thousand feet, bit of a push up, to get over. And normally about nine thousand feet, you can pick your way through the Alps. You know, you've got the peaks, but again, what we are flying, what's called visual. We're not flying on instruments, so we are. You know, we if I'm sitting here grinning. <laughs> if, the, if the helps are covered in cloud, you're not going through. No, because you know you're going to end up flying into what we call cumulus granite. You know, and that's not going to end well. No. So uh, all the flying I'm doing is visual because when you fly on instruments, when you're in cloud, there's nothing to see, and it's hard work. It, it's okay for a bit, but you would not want to be flying for two hours. I mean, these aircraft I've got autopilot. Uh, a lot of the ones that fly. So you, you're physically doing it and you're just staring at the instruments because there's nothing to see. There's no outside visual reference uh, and it's exhausting. 
Did you see the thing with James May when he took the Top Gear team? That he flew them back from I think Austria or somewhere like that, yeah. or through in a, a single engine. I mean, it, I, I'm sitting here grinning ear to ear because this is boys' own stuff. <laughs> it re- it really is. Yeah. If you when you join the army, if anyone has said to you, "This these are the great things that you'd be doing," what, how would you how would you approach that? How, how, what would you say? Uh, probably not believe them. You know, I do, I do sometimes on a couple. Like, it's like you know, this time yesterday I was down in southern Germany, you know, flying back, and I'm now sat here with you. And I do sometimes, you know, you, you get back home and you think, oh flipping heck, well, I just really done that. I mean, I sometimes I go to Holland with people and we have lunch, and you get home, I'm back home for three o'clock, and you, people say, where have you been? Oh, I went to Holland and had some lunch. They go, really? Yeah, it's, it's an hour and a half. Uh, like I'm off to France tomorrow with a guy. Oh, yeah. Go to Latouke for some lunch. So he's he'll fly over, and again I'm just showing him how to do the paperwork and. Make sure he, you know, stays safe. We'll land. We'll have some lunch and come back. Uh, yeah, easy. How lovely. But, but it's it's like anything. If you've done it, you know, when I first started this, to fly to France was a big thing. Now I can do it in my sleep. Yeah, of course. You know, it's like your job. You do your job in your sleep. I, I wouldn't know where to start with your job. The because um, you're going to relocate. How will that will that impact on what you're going to do or what you do? A little bit, and I mean part of the relocation. I think it's it's the military background. So when I moved to Kent with my partner, and uh, after about three years, I was like, I'm ready to move. I'm yeah. your feet now. And we were literally were about to move just before the lockdown. And when we went into lockdown, we thought, well, hold on, we better sit this out. Anyway, three four years later. We finally instigated the move and we go in a couple of weeks. And I think part of that is, yeah, just ditchy feet. I need a new scenery. And part of the challenge I like, because I do have some customers actually, because I have customers on my books who are based all around the UK and some are based down there, so I've still oh, okay, I've got good. them, so not a problem. And I will travel. I've flown with people from Wolverhampton and the other side of London, you know, So and there's quite a few based about them. Because it's a plane, they normally either come down and pick me up or I drive up and we fly from there. So I've got a few down there. But I look at the challenge of building up another customer base down there. Yeah. On the back of doing an instructing out of one of the local airfields, and they, they they basically approached them and said, "I'm moving down here. Do you need an instructor?" Yeah, of course we need. They always need instructors, because the problem with instructing is, it's possibly not sexy enough for people. People when they learn to fly or go to the commercial, they want to be, especially young kids, they want to be airline pilots, which I get, and that that's fine. Uh, but nobody wants to be an instructor, because historically the money is not great, and it's a seasonal job. The money's okay in the summer. You know, if you could earn the right same money through right 12 months of the year, it would be a very well-paid job. Because of the seasonality, if some people, you know, and some of the schools don't pay that well because they're trying to keep their overheads down. And there are some places where you think, I could earn more in McDonald's and teaching people to fly. But you've got to branch out. You've got to do, I do ground school sessions. I'm doing one on Saturday, teaching people a navigation system that we use. Right. Right. Uh, the odd ferry flight when you get it, when it's not to Iceland, maybe. I've, I've done one from Lithuania back to the UK. That was that was good. So you just got to sort of branch out with anything. And I also, with your self-employment, you, you, I don't know, you might be the same, Paul. I like the hustle. Yeah. I like the, the you know, the, the, the variety, work, the digging for work, you know, getting people on board, selling it to people. And, yeah. You know, I've had people come up to me saying, oh, you know, I want to do a flight with you, but I'm not too sure. You know, I said, come on then, we'll, we'll do it. And they've come back and they're grinning from here to here. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, there, there was one guy I taught and I took him down to Sarajevo and I thought because I thought I want to go back to Sarajevo because I, I flew in there in a helicopter once drove in as well but I flew in a helicopter and I thought how cool would it be to fly a plane so we flew down uh, we went down to Pula in the north and down to Dubrovnik had a night in Dubrovnik 
Uh, and that that's another thing, to fly into an airfield that I've, I've flown into Dubrovnik with Tui or Wizzair, whoever it was, and then to fly in yourself is quite cool to think I've landed this airfield in the jet and I've landed in the yeah. plane. And then we went out to Sarajevo and then on the way back we went and flew over places I'd served at. And I don't think he quite got it, but I was thinking, oh, that was down there, not long after the war, and it was a no-fly zone and you couldn't fly it. Uh, anyway, I took this guy all over these places and he went for a job interview with a company and one of the things they do when they get a job interview, they, they want to look at the logbook. And they, they were quite impressed that the entries he had in his logbook. You know, he wasn't just the normal pilot where he, you know, he had his local airfield and he'd been to Sandown in the Isle of Wight or the 2K in France. You know, this was right across Europe. Sarajevo. Sarajevo and Dubrovnik and, you know, in Austria and uh, Salzburg. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they were quite impressed. Whether that got him the job, I don't know. But I'm, he, maybe I'm he did come back to me and he said that they were quite impressed with his logbook and he... he it gave me a really good sense of fulfilment because he just said it was one of the best things he's ever done. And I've had quite a few pilots like that come back and just say, you know, they're so glad. Because when, you, when you're building your hours, you've got to make it one of several things. You've got to learn from it because there's no point. If you've got to build hours and experience, there's no point just taking off from your airfield and literally just flying no. circles in the sky. You're not going to learn anything. So you've got to learn things. You've got to challenge yourself. So you've got to go outside your comfort zone. You've got to go and fly to a new country, new airfields. But I say to him, above all, you've got to have fun. Yeah. Because you're going to be in that thing where you're just flying a plane round, and you're never going to get that focus. Because when you start flying for a living, it's got a potential to come a bit mundane after a while. Uh, one of the guys I took on another trip, it always sticks in my mind, we went down to southern Europe, and we had uh, breakfast in the south of France. We then had lunch in Corsica, and then we had dinner in Andorra. And I just think, how, how cool is that? And we, you know, up and down the coast, over the water. That is very cool. You know. That is very cool. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's bonkers, isn't it? This boy from Wirral, the Wirral, who's now flying around Europe as a free spirit. So if people want to contact you, we'll put your email address in the body of the of the podcast, all your social media links, everything yeah. else. I've got a website, buddiesaviation.club. Uh, there's a contact on there. I'll give you the email address. Yeah. Uh, Aviation is a small world, so, you know, to be honest, I can be found on Facebook if you just put in Buddies Aviation or Twitter. It's on there's Buddies Aviation. So aviation is generally a small world. It's quite a uh, uh, a niche area as well. So my name is out there, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite as famous as some pilots, but, you know, my name is out there for what I do. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I'll, I think I'll it's I'll keep doing it as long as I can, you know, as long as I keep passing that medical, I will I'll keep doing it. There will come a day where, you know, I'll go for the medical and they'll say... Yeah, I'm afraid that that heart sounded not too good. You might yeah. need to hang up your, hang up your flying gloves. <laughs> well, hopefully that's a long, long way off yeah. yet, mate. Um, in the police, we have a we have a thing where we ask our contributors if they've got anything else to add, alter, or correct. So, have you got anything that you'd like to add, alter, or correct from today's statement? Uh, no, I think we've we've pretty much covered anything. You know, uh, everything. Uh, I've really enjoyed it yeah. today. I found it absolutely fascinating. I th- like I say, I think it's the boy's own stuff in me that I, I, w- I was great at flying. I enjoyed flying until I had kids and then I became a nervous flyer. And now my kids are offhand. I- I'm, you know, I couldn't care less. I, I, get, I was I, the other way because when I flew, when I was in the army, we went in the back of planes or I flew yeah. on a, 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 you know, a BA flight. I hated it. I didn't like what was going on. And now, I remember my, uh, somebody bought me a trial flight many, many years ago, and I went, I'm not doing that. And I went off and did a racing car instead. 
And I, w- I was literally terrified of flying. And then I think what it was, it's, I didn't understand the mechanics. Yeah. I didn't understand what's going on. And now I do. So when you when I remember after jumping onto a, a jet after doing a little bit of flying, and you get these sensations, and you can in your head you could see what the pilot was doing. Yeah. You know when you suddenly go light in your seat or a bit heavy, he's he's pushing forward or pulling, and you understand the mechanics of the wing and stuff, and you think, yeah, we're not going to fall out of the sky. No. You know if something goes wrong, we we can become a glider. Uh, I'm not. I've I've got a fear of heights. Have but, you? Probably in the cockpit. Sit in the door, you know, and you bank the plane over, and I'm looking out the right window, three thousand feet. I love it. Nothing, nothing doesn't bother me. But go up a ladder, you know, to uh, take the the weeds up the gutter at home, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm gonna die. I love it. I I have to have a a window seat on a plane because I just love looking out. And I flew back from Australia last year, and I can't remember we were coming over, and it. We were really up high, you know, sort of almost like Nepal or wherever it was, but we were coming yeah. coming across this really high. And you could see the villages, yeah. literally these mountain villages. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely, I just I absolutely I should, love I, it. Well, if we can try it, we should take you up, actually. Oh, Go this afternoon. <laughs> I've got to do a film in this afternoon. But yeah. uh, listen, uh, please keep in touch with us yeah. because I, I find your story fascinating and I wish you well. Um, and I'm sure that people will enjoy this. They'll find all your links in the body of the of the text that's on the podcast. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today. No I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, just one thing to add before I go. I said yes, the book is on Amazon. Yeah, uh, but you can find me on. Uh, I've started an account on Twitter uh, at posted underscore to underscore b a o r. A bit of a sort of yeah. comedy account. Uh, it's doing well. That's well. where I picked it, picked yeah. you up because I saw the b a o r and I thought, yeah, I, I knew yeah. what that meant. But if anybody wants a signed copy of the book, you know, just drop me a message on there. Uh, I've got a load of books at home I'll send off. We recently did a, a stall down at Headcorn during the Battle of Britain Day. That went really well. Brilliant. You know, it was good to talk to the public about it and sell, give the books to a lot of people. A lady came up to me and said she'd never read a book in her life, bought the book, so hopefully, I don't know if she was listening. Yeah, I, brilliant. I she's enjoyed it. That was really cool. Uh, and, yeah, uh, it was good. I'm looking forward to it. But, yeah, as I say, everything's going to be, all your social media links, your, your book link, everything's going to be yeah. in the body of the text. I mean, if anybody's got any questions on writing a book... Happy to answer the questions. I'm not the expert on it, but I can certainly offer advice and how how I went about it. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure that they they will take you up on that. Thank you so much for your time today. No problems. You're a good man. Thanks very much.